Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Oh, 
continuing our study verse by verse through the book of Romans, but we reached an interesting junction last week, and I actually kind of introduced this morning's topic while I was talking last week. And so this morning is actually going to be more of a topical sermon. I don't typically teach topical sermons. I usually go through books of the Bible verse by verse. But it's really necessary, I think, for us to understand the differences, the distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and what the standard is for us as Christians. Because as you look at the words that Paul has used so far in the book of Romans, we even heard Micah say it this morning, that we are free from the law, we are delivered from the law, we are dead to the law. Paul calls the law the ministry of death. He calls the law the ministry of condemnation. So that kind of leads to the question, well then if we don't have the law to go to, As our standard, what exactly is our standard? Where do we find it? Typically what happens is that preachers in the desire to encourage holiness among people will say, okay, now you are redeemed, now you are justified, Now you are, in the mind of God, fully glorified. We're going to see all of that in Romans chapter 8. That's all a done deal. God has accomplished all that on our behalf. And then when people say, but then how should I live here in the world? All too often, preachers will say, well, you go back to Moses. You go back and you look at the law. So let's think about that for just a moment. Because first off, Gentiles... We're never under the law to begin with. We weren't there at Mount Sinai. And the giving of the law to Moses was the method through which God established Israel as a nation, as a theocracy. But there were no Gentile nations there. In fact, the law was a way of distinguishing Israel, the people of God, from the rest of the peoples on the planet because they were the only ones who had the law of Yahweh. They were the only ones who had the prophets. They were the only ones who had the revelation of God to themselves that God would want them to be like this, live like this. This was a way of separating them from the rest of the world. No Gentile nations were there. Meanwhile, the law never saved anybody. And in fact, as we're about to read out of the book of Galatians, through the law, absolutely nobody was ever justified. So the law never saved anybody. The law never justified anybody. And then people are saved by Christ and his finished work. People are fully redeemed, justified, glorified in the mind of God. And then they go to their pastor and they say, how now should I live? And the pastors take them to that law they were never under in the first place, to that law that can't help them or save them or justify them. And they'll say, there, there's your standard. But the question is, well, if you take away the law, then where do we go? Where is our standard? 
That's what we're going to talk about this morning, and I'm going to try to explain to you that Christians do indeed have a standard. In fact, people who are not Christian know that Christians have a standard. If you ask them, define a Christian for me, usually they will define Christianity based on what Christians do. And because everybody knows that Christians act a certain way and do certain things, there must be a standard for Christians. But it's not the law. Paul has made it very, very clear that it simply cannot be the law. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 15, says, We are Jews by nature, and we are not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but he is justified through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ then the minister of sin? Well, may it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's what we saw last week. When we looked at Romans 7 last week, we saw Paul saying, it was the law that produced sin in me. It was the law that exposed how truly sinful I actually am. Paul's thinking, Paul's writing, New Covenant thinking and writing always says that the purpose of the law was to demonstrate how sinful sin really is. But it was never for the purpose of justifying anybody. It was never for the purpose of saving anybody. And here you have the plain, clear declaration from Paul that by the law, no flesh gets justified. So then you go to your preacher and you say, I need a standard. I need to know how to live. And he sends you to that very law that can't justify you. That can't help you. That can't improve your holiness. That very law that will only demonstrate to you how truly sinful you are. But then if that's all we've got, and you take that away from us, where do we go? The best way, perhaps, to explain our relationship to the law is to explain it by way of an analogy. Because we as Christians would all agree that there are certain standards that universally we just agree to. For instance, uh, don't kill. We all agree, don't kill. Now the law says don't kill. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't kill. Don't do any murder. Now that we're in the New Covenant, killing and murder is not okay. 
So we know that killing is still bad. We know that adultery is still bad. We know that lying is still bad. But aren't those rules of the Old Covenant? Aren't those the Ten Commandments? Aren't those the rules of the law? You can see the confusion then. People will say, well, then we do go back to the law to find those rules. But we don't. Here's my analogy. See if this helps a bit. Most kids these days are not raised knowing much about history. As I have said over and over again, the only thing we've learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. But the independence of these states that were then united, so were the United States, the original 13 colonies broke away from England. Now, England was heavily taxing the United States, and so... The residents of the United States had the war cry, taxation without representation is tyranny. And that led to the Boston Tea Party and ultimately to the American Revolution, where we threw off the rules of George III. And the thing that really tipped it was taxation. Just too many taxes. Taxes to the king in the king's court, we have no representation, therefore we're opposed to taxes, so much so that we're going to draw up a declaration of our own independence, and then we're going to draw up a constitution where we make up our new rules. We as a group, independent from England, are going to throw off the rules of England, including taxation, and we're going to make up our own rules which is why to this very day the government of the United States does not impose heavy taxes on the citizens of the United... What? Am I wrong? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. So taxation is something that the government of the United States still implements. Okay, so why did we leave England? Because of the burden of heavy confiscatory taxation. Now what are we living with? Heavy confiscatory taxation. So we're still paying taxes. We're just not paying them to England. We're still paying taxes, but we're paying those taxes because of new rules under a new constitution to a new government. We're still doing the same action, which is paying taxes. We're just not paying those taxes because the king of England says to pay taxes. We're paying those taxes because the government of the United States says pay taxes. So even though they're similar, they're different. Do you see the difference? Okay, same thing with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, there are definitely rules that are just like the rules of the Old Covenant. But they are not incumbent on our conscience because they're the rules Moses gave us. They are incumbent on our New Covenant conscience because they are the rules of the new covenant. And the rules of the new covenant have a different inspiration for why we keep those rules. We used to keep the rules according to the law of Moses, which said, do this or die. That's not what the new covenant says. The new covenant says, do this because God is holy and because he has put his Holy Spirit inside you, therefore, in your desire to love and please your Holy Father, do these things, 
and do these things in a way that is inspired by love. In other words, the law says do this or die. The new covenant says do this because you live. Okay, that's a very, very different motivation for doing the same thing. It's still don't kill. It's still don't commit adultery. So we're going to look this morning at a series of verses that I think are going to clarify this difference. Because I don't want you thinking after everything that Paul has said that Paul is saying we are now completely lawless. Paul was accused of that. Paul was accused of being antinomian, anti-law. And he said, no, no, it's not that we're lawless. It's that we're under a different law. So we are still under a law. We are still under obedience to a standard. But it is not because Moses said so. It's not because George III said so. It's because we are under a new covenant. We're under a new constitution. We're under a new deal. Do you understand the parallel that I'm drawing here, the political parallel that I'm drawing in order to make the old covenant, new covenant distinction? For years here at GCA, we have talked Old Covenant, New Covenant, and I hope to kind of bring it all together this morning so that you can understand that we as Christian people still do have and still live by a standard, and it's a very real standard, but it's motivated by and based in a completely different covenant and a completely different motivation. It's not rules written in stone It's rules written on the tablets of our heart. It's two different deals. You got it? Okay, that's all introduction. It's almost 1130. You know the rule. Doesn't count against my time. Okay, so as we continue into Romans 8, Paul is going to continue what he kind of began developing in Romans 7, which was the contrast between law and flesh. Law and flesh and the spirit. The contrast, I'll say it more plainly, the contrast is going to be between the law and flesh and the spirit. We saw last week that he said, don't walk by the flesh. To walk by the flesh is death. To walk by the flesh is not just doing bad things, but walking by the flesh is thinking that you can obligate God, that you can justify yourself in your flesh by keeping the rules of Moses. And he says that ends up in your condemnation. Walking by the Spirit is walking by Christ walking by the fact that you do have the Holy Spirit in you. And if you walk by the Spirit, he said, that leads to eternal life. So the contrast is enormous. You can either walk by the flesh thinking, not only am I bad enough, but the cure for how bad I am is for my flesh to do better. I can solve my flesh problem in my flesh. And he says that leads to death. Walking by the Spirit leads to life. And as we continue in Romans 8, we're going to see Paul continue to contrast the law and flesh with the spirit. So then we're not under the law. Is everybody clear on that? Do I have to spell it out any other ways? We're, We're clear on that, right? As often as not, you'll hear covenantal theologians who will say to you, Yeah, well, 
we're not under the law entirely, but there is a portion of the law that we're still under. And they will divide the law into three categories. And they'll say there's a moral law, there's a ceremonial law, there's a civil law. And they'll say the civil law had to do with Israel as a nation, so you don't have to do that. They'll say the ceremonial law, that was the priesthood, and that was the temple, and that was killing animals. You don't have to do that. But the moral part of the law, you're still obligated to do. That is still pressed onto the conscience of Christian people. You still have to do the moral law. The problem with that kind of thinking, of course, is it's not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible do you ever find anybody, Old or New Testament, divide the law into three categories. That just does not exist. As we were going through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, verse by verse, one of the things that we saw that really jumped out at us all was that you would see moral and civil and ceremonial laws jammed right up against each other. And it was very, very difficult to say, okay, now this one, this sentence right here, this one applies to us. This sentence right here does not apply to us. This sentence right here might or might not apply to us. And because of the confusion about whether we are obligated to some part of the law, that's why even atheists can say to us, well, yes, the Old Testament says pick something that we would agree with. Like, uh, yes, homosexuality is an abomination before God. So we go out and we publicly say that. And we say, yes, the Bible says, Old Testament says that, that homosexuality is an abomination before God. And then the atheist will turn around and say, so then I assume that you don't eat shellfish and you don't mix your fabrics. Because if that's the standard, if the law is the standard, then they've got all the tools they need to say, well, you don't live it either. That's the problem that comes from that idea that we are under some portion of the law. So Paul's language couldn't be more clear. The law in its totality the law utterly and completely from beginning to end, we as Christians, not only, especially Gentile Christians, have not only never been under it to begin with, but we're not under it at all even to this day. You might remember that there were, that there were Judaizers that came to Galatia and they were trying to get Gentiles to at least be circumcised, keep some part of the law. And Paul withstood them to their face. Paul even ended up blaming Peter because of his dissembling from the Gentiles. And he was saying, how come you, until the Judaizers were here, were living like somebody without law? You were eating with the Gentiles, and then the Judaizers come. Suddenly, you're dissembling yourself like you're keeping kosher all the time and not ever assembling with the, with the Gentiles. Okay, Paul was adamant in saying that among the Gentile Christians, we have no connection to the law at all. Then, I know what this sounds like. Stick with me. My story gets better. Hang with me. <laughs> then somebody will say, okay, not the law. I agree. The 613 ordinances, okay, not the law. We're not under the law. I'm with you on that one. But at least the Ten Commandments, right? That's still incumbent on us to hold. 
There's two problems with that. The first is, if you're keeping the Ten Commandments, then you have to keep the Sabbath, because that's one of the Ten Commandments. But we as Christians agree with that we don't keep the Sabbath, and what I mean by keep the Sabbath is Friday night at sundown, stop all kinds of manual labor, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, keep it separate, don't do any servile work at all, neither you or your household, your manservant, your maidservant, nobody can do any servile work all day Saturday until sundown, okay, that's keeping Sabbath. Okay, there's nobody in the Christian church who's doing that. So what has the Christian church done? They changed it. And they said, no, Sabbath is Sunday now, which doesn't even make sense mathematically because the word Sabbath comes from the word seventh. And so now the first is the seventh. I don't even know how you do that. The first day of the week is now the seventh day of the week. No, the solution to that problem is we don't keep Sabbath. It's just not even a thing. And the New Testament writers write about that and say that Jesus, especially in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our final rest. That's what the Sabbath was pointing to. But more importantly, keeping Sabbath was a sign and a seal of the law of Moses. So if you insist that people keep Sabbath, you're insisting that people are under the law of Moses. And we got a big problem because James said if you miss the law in any one point, you're guilty of the whole law, and that means you're under the curse of the law. One of the things that people don't talk about enough is the law not only contains promises of life if you could do it and nobody did it, but it also contains a curse. And if you don't do it, you're under that curse. And so when people say, well, remember to tithe, or remember to keep Sabbath, or remember, they're putting you back under the law, and then if you break the law in any one point, you're guilty of the whole law, and you find yourself under a curse. There, there's no logic to that in my way of thinking. The second problem with, well, we keep the Ten Commandments, is the language that the Bible does use for the Ten Commandments. The words of the Ten Commandments are referred to as The words of the covenant. And they're written on tablets of stone that are called the tablets of the covenant. And then they were put in a golden box that was called the Ark of the Covenant. Are you getting a clue here? These were the words of a covenant that God was forming with Israel as he was establishing the nation of Israel. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is not so that Christians thousands of years later can refer to the Ten Commandments for their morality. The purpose of the Ten Commandments was to form the Old Covenant. But we're not under the Old Covenant. So even going to the Ten Commandments, as I'm going to show you in a moment, I'm still introducing, aren't I? As I'm going to show you in a moment, that even the Ten Commandments are wrapped up in love God, love your neighbor. Totally different motivation. The motivation under Moses, do this or die. Do this or you're under a curse. The motivation in the new covenant is do this out of love. Do this out of your desire to be holy. Do this because you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you. That's what it is to walk by the spirit instead of walking by the flesh. So, 
as Christian people. Do we believe in killing? No. Is it because Moses said so? No. It's because God himself, who is holy, has placed in us the desire to be holy and has given us the command to love our brethren. And if we love each other and account each other as better than ourselves, then we're not going to do anything like killing, like adultery, like lying, like coveting. So we end up fulfilling the law and the Ten Commandments, but we're not doing it because it was the law and the Ten Commandments. We're doing it because we belong to Christ and Christ is in us. Do you see the difference? Yes, sir. Is everybody clear so far? Okay. Starting all the way back in Deuteronomy 18:15, Christ is referred to by Moses as the new lawgiver. Moses was the person who went up on Sinai, who got the law from God, who brought the law down to Israel. But then toward the end of his ministry, he said, Deuteronomy 18:15, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you'll listen to him." That statement was then picked up by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and when preaching to Israelites on the day of Pentecost, he said, Acts 3:22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. So there was an old covenant and Moses was the old covenant law giver. But then there's a new covenant and in the new covenant there is a new law giver. If there is a new law giver, there is a new law. There is a new standard. There is an expectation for Christians. But it is the law that was given to us through Christ, not the law that was given to us through Moses. Do you see the distinction? The distinction is huge in the Bible. So then what is our relationship to the law? I argue, as Paul does, that we have no relationship to the law as far as our obligation to live by it, to keep it. That's what he calls living by the flesh. He says that leads to death. The law is good. The law is right. The law is holy. There is nothing wrong with the law. The problem's us. The problem is we can't live to that law. We can't follow that standard in the perfection that is required in order to gain eternal life or justification by the law. The problem's not the law. The law is good and right and holy. So this is the way Paul approaches it in Romans 15. Starting at verse 4, he says, Whatever was written in earlier times, he's referring to the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, it's really, really important and vital to understand. What was written in the law was written for our instruction. It wasn't written for our justification. It wasn't written so that we could follow the law and perfect ourselves in the flesh. It was written so that we understand how holy God is. It was written so that we understand 
what God expects if you could live a perfect, righteous, holy life. And part of that instruction is for you to come to the realization you can't do it. You can't live by the law. And that instruction will lead you to Christ. That instruction will lead you to say what I've been saying for a couple of weeks now. Help me. The law's purpose was to show you how truly sinful you were and are and continue to be. And so for that reason, the things that were written before were written for your instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we still have hope. But it was not written so that we could be justified by the law. So then... In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the whole of the law is summed up for us by Jesus himself, the new lawgiver. Because the Pharisees came to him in Matthew 22, starting at verse 34. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, somebody who's very fastidious about the law, we're not talking about George here, not lawyer that way somebody who's very fastidious about the rules of the law, and they asked him a question, testing him. Matthew takes the time to tell us that this question was not so that they could gain information or so that they could gain instruction in righteousness. It was for the purpose of setting him up. And they said to him, what's the great commandment in the law? Now, they were expecting one of the ten They were expecting, of the Ten Commandments, what's the big one? What's the important one? The answer he gives them sums up the whole of the law and doesn't go to the Ten, which I find fascinating. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the great and the foremost commandment. Then he said, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on those two commandments depends the law and the prophets. So what did Jesus just do? He just, as the new lawgiver, just said what his commandments are. This is the same Jesus who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And people read that and think, oh, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. No, he's not. He's saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we see time and time again that his commandments are higher and better and superior to the commandments of Moses. But they're also based on something that the law of Moses was never based in. The new covenant rules are based in, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to reside inside you, to act as a governor not only on your thoughts and your behavior, but also to encourage good works out of you. The law never gave you that. The law was set in stone and said, do this or die. Do this or suffer the curse. The new covenant and the new lawgiver has new rules, new commands, many of which sound identical to the old commands. But they're his commands now. I'll write my laws in your heart. heart. Absolutely. On these two commands 
depends the whole of the law and the prophets. That phrase, the law and the prophets, I've told you many times, refers to the whole of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's the Tanakh. So whenever you see Jesus using the phrase, the law and the prophets, he's referring to everything that's been written in what we call the Old Testament. And he says the whole of the Old Testament hangs on these two linchpins. And those two linchpins are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, are you going to worship idols? No. No. Are you going to have other gods before him? No. No. So that kind of satisfies the first couple of commandments. Don't take his name in vain. Don't take his name in vain. Why? Because you love him. Not because it says so in stone, but because the Holy Spirit of God inside you inspires you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you would not take his name in vain. You're satisfying the commandments, but you're not satisfying the commandments because Moses said to. You're satisfying the commandments because the new lawgiver said to. And the way you do it is different. The motivation is you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's why you do it. As opposed to if you don't do it under Moses, you die. Do you see the difference? Am I alone up here? Okay, hang with me. My story gets better. Because then Paul picks up that very thinking in Romans 13. We're going to land on it in a few weeks, months, sometime in 2020. We'll, we'll land in Romans 13. And Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. What is he saying? How can he say that? He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Well, now he's going to explain it. And he says, because this, and now he quotes several commandments. For this, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the commandments. Which one? It's the seventh. It's the seventh commandment. You shall not steal. Which one is that? Eight. Very good. You shall not covet. Ten. Okay, so he just went for three commandments right there. Three of the ten. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. You don't steal. You don't covet. I'm sorry, that's four of the ten right there. And then he says, and if there's any other commandment. So let's see, the first three had to do with God. The following seven had to do with how you interact with each other. Well, the fourth is about keeping the Sabbath. But by the way, the Sabbath command isn't repeated anywhere in the New Testament. Instead, what you find in the book of Hebrews is the satisfaction and fulfillment of the Sabbath command in Christ bringing us perfect rest. So... Paul says, if there's any commandments, like don't commit adultery, don't do murder, don't steal, don't covet, and if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because the same way that I said, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you won't go chasing after idols. Same idea. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to kill him. You're not going to commit adultery. 
You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to covet his stuff. Why? Because you love him first and foremost. If you follow the directive of Paul's thinking, Paul's theology in the Philippian letter, when he says, esteem every man as better than yourself. If you live that way, if you see in every man a man who deserves the love and respect because he's a brother in Christ and therefore you want to do nothing but good to him, well, then you don't need to be told on tablets of stone, don't kill him. Because you're not going to kill him. But the motivation is different. The motivation is the spirit of God inside me inspires me to love him so much that I don't kill him. So the standard still exists, but the standard is inspired by the fact that you love God and you love your neighbor. Because, says verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Don't just read past that casually. Paul, who has already told you that the law can't justify you, Paul, who has already said that the law is the ministry of death and condemnation, has said, and you can satisfy the requirements of the law through love. If you love each other, you're naturally going to keep those rules that you do find in the law. But you're not going to keep them because the law told you to. You're going to keep them because you belong to Christ. James then refers to that as the royal law. And he holds it up in contrast with the law of Moses and the law of Sinai. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he just called that the royal law because King Jesus gave it to us. So if King Jesus said it, Paul puts it in his theology, James puts it in his theology, it's that important to basic Christian thinking that they keep repeating it, love your neighbor as yourself, if you do that, you're doing well. Then he goes on and says, but if you show partiality, then you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law, the law of Moses, and stumbles at any one point, then he's guilty of the whole law. For he who said, God who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, well, then you've become a transgressor of the whole law. So, speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. Oh, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole different standard. The law that would condemn you eternally for committing one sin is very different than the law of liberty. The royal law whereby you love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, if that's who you are, if you are under the royal law, if you are under the law of liberty, if you are under this new lawgiver, if you're under this new covenant, he says, speak and act like it. Speak and walk like people who are under the law of liberty. For judgment, God's judgment by the law will be merciless. You ever think about that? I mean, you want mercy. 
If you're anything like me, if you know anything about yourself and you realize how often you've goofed up, you want mercy. And he just said, if you're judged by the law, the Moses law, if you're judged by that standard, merciless. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. But then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So Paul said, Love does no wrong to a neighbor because love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, James has told us that mercy will triumph over judgment. So all these things that the law, the old covenant law, the law of Moses, all these things that it required and the death sentence that came with it, the mercilessness that came with it, the killing, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation that came with it, is overwhelmed by, satisfied in, fulfilled in the new covenant and the laws of the new covenant because those laws require love and mercy and that overcomes hatred or jealousy or judgment or any of those things that the old covenant law required. Am I alone? James mentioned the perfect law. In James 1.25, that perfect law actually leads to separation, to sanctification, as opposed to the imperfect law, which ended up killing people, in James's thinking. James 1.25 says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, which he then calls again the law of liberty, and abides by it, Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man is blessed in what he does. So think about that. There is a standard for Christians. The standard is the new covenant and the rules of the new covenant. The rules of the new covenant are very different than the rules of the old covenant. Sometimes the rules of the new covenant sound very much like the rules of the old covenant, but the rules of the new covenant actually satisfy and fulfill the rules of the old covenant, which the old covenant could never do. Make sense? Yes. Because we are under a higher, better covenant with a higher better lawgiver with a higher better sacrifice therefore we have that higher better spirit and we behave higher better got it this teaching of the complete freedom of the law or from the law of Moses led to Paul being accused of lawlessness which I said to you before and I have said time and time again if Paul could be accused of being an antinomian If you have never been accused of being an antinomian, you're still not preaching the gospel because the legalists will hear you. And if they can't tell the difference between what they believe and what you're saying, if they have never said, well, then you're an antinomian. Well, then you're still not really preaching the gospel the way Paul did because the legalists of his day also accused him of being antinomian. But he pointed out the very thing I've been trying to say this whole morning, which is we are not lawless. Look at how he answers it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, for those of you who are following along. Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself doulos, slave 
to all men so that I can win the more to Christ. To the Jews, the ones that were under the law, the legalists, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jews. In the book of Acts, you see a demonstration of that. When he came to James in Jerusalem, James asked him, he said, your reputation has spread far and wide, and when the brethren here find out you're here, they're going to want to know what's up with you. And he said, this is my advice. Show them that you're not adverse to the law. In fact, take a vow. Go in the temple. Sacrifice an animal. Shave your head. Keep an old covenant vow. This is the same Paul who would not allow the Judaizers to talk to the Gentiles in any way that would advocate keeping the law. He withstood them completely. But when he was in Jerusalem among the Jews, listening to James, and James said, go act like you're still under the law, he did it. Here he's explaining why he did it. To the Jews, I became like a Jew so that I might win the Jews. His purpose was always to bring people to Christ. But he had the freedom to act like he was under law, and he had the freedom in Christ to act like someone who had no law. To those who were under the law, I was like one under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I could win those who were under the law. And to those who are without the law, I was like one as without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Look at the contrast. I'm not antinomian as you might accuse me, even though I act when I'm among those who are without the law of Moses. I act like one who's without the law of Moses. I'm not utterly antinomian. I'm not without law at all. I'm just not under Moses. I'm under Christ. But notice what he says, the law of Christ. I'm under the teaching. I'm under the headship. I'm under the instruction. I'm under the behavior that is commensurate with what I profess. I profess Christ, and through Christ, I've received his Holy Spirit. Therefore, I crave holiness in everything that that looks like. So I walk and I talk in a way that is perfectly suited for the profession that I put out there. To those who are without law, I was as without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So that I might win those who are without law. So what is then, now that he's referred to the law of Christ, what is the law of Christ? Let's identify it. What is then the law of Christ? Well, Galatians 6.2 says... Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So the law of Christ is all about relationship. It's all about loving each other. It's all about mercy. It's all about bearing one another's burdens. It's all about seeing every man is better than yourself. It's all about walking, talking, acting in a way that is the way that would demonstrate what you claim to believe. Goodwill. 
we all know, I'm sure everyone in this room knows what it's like and how frustrating it is to hear somebody say, I'm a Christian publicly, and then you see their walk, you see the way they behave, you see the way they talk, you see the things they write on Facebook, and, and you think, how is that Christian? How, how can you say you're Christian and your walk doesn't comport with it? Well, the entire concept of the law of Christ has to do with your walk in life comporting with your profession of faith in Christ. So that you, as emissaries of Christ, as representatives of Christ on the planet, are actually walking and talking in such a way that the world can see that you are, in fact, different. That you are, in fact, the emissaries of Christ. That's what it is to follow the law of Christ. You know that First Peter, I won't even go there, but First Peter says, it's written, you shall be holy because I am holy. So what is God's expectation out of Christian people who he has redeemed through the blood of his son? Is his expectation there, now I've saved you, go live like hell? No. Obviously not. His expectation is, I have saved you through the blood of my son. I'm holy. I've given you the spirit, the Holy Spirit, Therefore, now walk in a way, talk in a way, act in a way that is commensurate with the fact that you have a Holy Spirit inside you. There's a joke that I heard many, many years ago about a kid who came home and said to his dad after Sunday school, he said, I learned today in Sunday school that apparently the Holy Spirit lives inside me. And he kept looking down and looking around. Looking, his dad said, what are you looking for? And he said, well, I just figured if that's true, it would show. Okay, that's a fact. If the Holy Spirit of an eternal God is inside you, it would show. It would be how you walk, how you talk, how you live. That becomes not only the governor on your behavior, which I've used that phrase for years, But that also becomes your inspiration in those moments where you're up against events that could go really wrong for you. And you have that moment of decision making. Am I going to participate in this thing or am I not? The key to it is the indicative, the imperative. Remember who you are, what Christ has done for you, your standing in Christ, that you're already seated in heavenly places, that you are different than the world. Remember all that about yourself, and that becomes the inspiration for what you do next. As I've said, and this will simplify it all, I'm going to say it again. Be the Christian. See how easy that was? Even if everybody else in the world decides that they're not going to act biblical or they're not going to act like Christians or they're not going to pay attention to any of this Bible stuff, you, you, you individually, you be the Christian. You walk in the way that the Bible says to walk. You walk in the way that is commensurate with what you claim to believe. I have seen people go to great lengths to demonstrate that they adhere to a sports team. I've seen people go to great lengths to show that they love a particular rock star. Here in the world, we see it all the time. 
We see people openly advertising and advocating what they believe in. Christ says, do that. That's the law of Christ. Walk in a way that shows the world, this is what I believe. Now let's get further into what does the law of Christ look like. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul writes, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, that the Lord knows who are his. And, second part, first, God knows you. God knows the ones that are his. He knows who belongs to him. That's why he gives those people the Holy Spirit. Those are the people he's chosen since before the foundation of the world. He knows the ones that are his. And the second one is everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That's about as firm a New Testament command as you need right there. Everyone who names the name of the Lord, don't be wicked. Abstain from wickedness. Okay, there's a new covenant command right there. This is one of the new lawgiver's new rules. And part of his new rule is if you name my name, if you say you belong to me, if you say that I'm in you and you're in me, don't go out in the world and act like the world. Don't be wicked because we're different. We're called to holiness. We're called to God is holy, therefore be holy. There's one half of it. Be holy, and the other half is don't be wicked. Is that clear? Yes. Now, if you follow that standard, be holy, don't be wicked, do you really need somebody to break down all the individual moments and say, now in this situation, don't do this and do that? No, you don't need it. All you need is the standard that says, be holy, don't be wicked then you're not going to kill. Then you're not going to commit adultery. Then you're not going to steal. You get the idea? If you're being holy, if that is your desire, you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And so you're going to satisfy the first three of the commandments. And in fact, you're going to satisfy the whole of the law and the prophets. And you're going to satisfy it not because, I'm going to keep saying this until I drill this into your memory, not because Moses said it, Not because it's written in stone. Not because Israel was told it. You're going to do it because you have the Holy Spirit in you and you're told to be holy and to not be wicked. I'm glad to see all the nodding heads right now. All right. This and then we'll wrap it up. Galatians 5 starting at verse 16. Turn there if you'd like to because this kind of lays it out. This is the summation of everything I've been saying. Last week, at the end of Romans 7, we kept seeing Paul talk about the contrast between the law and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. Kept saying, walk by the flesh, you're dead. Walk by the spirit, you live. Flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. Going into Romans 8, he's going to continue that contrast. Flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. Don't walk by the flesh, walk by the spirit. This is standard Pauline theology When writing to the Galatians, starting in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. This is standard Pauline thinking. Don't walk by the flesh, which includes both 
law keeping for your justification and walking in a way like this present evil age. Don't be in the flesh, be in the spirit. If you're in the spirit, then you're going to aspire for those things that are higher and better and holier. And that's what it is to walk by the spirit. But I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's what I've been saying all morning. That kind of summarizes what I've been saying. Remember who you are when you're in these situations where you have the option to walk by the flesh. Remember how you've been redeemed. Remember who redeemed you. And then make your decisions based on that. And don't walk by the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, if you are led by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, then you're not going to want to walk by the flesh. Here, I'll make it more simple. Have any of you had the experience yet of coming to the realization that you can't do the things you used to do? Yeah. How many of you hate it when I ask you to raise your hand? Okay, did you raise your hands? Okay, Okay, so why is that? Why, why did you change despite yourself? Because left to yourself, you wouldn't change. If it was just you in the flesh, you would not change because you love your sin too much. You like the life that you were living and the pleasures that come with it. You would have just continued on that same road that you were on. But something happened to you. Something changed you in such a way that you can no longer do the things you used to do. Why? What changed? That's why Paul says, who made thee to differ? Who made you different than the rest of the world? You didn't do it. What happened was God putting his Holy Spirit in you just naturally changes who you are, what you're like, what you want, what you do. God gets all the credit for it because God's the one doing it, which is why you end up doing the good works that he has foreordained that you're going to walk in. But you're changing because God is changing you as he goes through the process of conforming you into the image of his son, which is what Romans 8 is going to say. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh because the flesh sets its desires against the spirit. Anybody experienced that lately? That's exactly what Paul was describing in Romans 7. I want to do good things. There are things I desire to do. Those aren't the things I do. I end up doing the thing I don't want to do. Paul says the flesh is at enmity with the spirit. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. They're at enmity with each other. So that you may not do the things that you please. Does this sound like Romans 7? Again, it's standard Pauline theology. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now he's going to list deeds of the flesh. They are immorality. Okay, so if you're not supposed to walk by the deeds of the flesh, and one of the deeds of the flesh is immorality, what does that tell you about your standing before the question of morality? You're to be moral. You're to do moral things. Don't be immoral. Impurity. Well, then be pure. To walk by the Spirit is to walk after pure things, right things, proper things, moral things. Love. Right. Sensuality. 
that desire, that craving, that longing for what you don't have and the things that you desire. Idolatry, sorcery. Now, before you're too quick to say, okay, I'm good on that one. I, I, lately, I don't do the sorcery thing. The root word of that sorcery there is pharmakeia, the, the Greek word. Anybody lately been doing too many drugs? Uh, it's going rampant in our society. Enmities, which is just hatred, disliking each other, the opposite of loving each other. Strife, which is a form of contention. Jealousy, not being happy. What have we been talking about on Wednesday nights as we've been going through Ecclesiastes? Being content with what God gave you. This is part of never being happy, never being content, being jealous that somebody else has something. Outbursts of anger. Anybody guilty of that one lately? Disputes. Arguing with each other constantly, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness. By the way, the drunkenness one there is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, Old Covenant, New Covenant, because Paul actually does give a directive in the New Testament where he says, be not drunk with wine. So drunkenness, carousing, that's staying out until all hours of the night, getting into all kinds of trouble. And things like these. <laughs> After Paul gives that list, he goes, you know what I'm talking about. Come on, that kind of stuff. Don't do that, he says. That's what it is to be after the flesh. Don't do that. But these things I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit. And I think this is part of the new law, the new lawgiver, the law of Christ, the standard of love and mercy and caring for each other is emphasized by the fruit of the Spirit, which is what Gladys just said, love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What does that tell you about your flesh? It tells you in your flesh, you can't do that kind of love. You have to have the Spirit to do the kind of love that Christianity expects. You have to have the spirit of God in order to be sacrificial in the way you love one another. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the standards of the new covenant. Those are the standards by which we walk. Those are the standards that are the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul even goes so far as to say, and against those there is no law. Be like that, and there's no law against you. The law can't condemn you if you're walking like that. If you're walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh, then you're free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Now, Verse 24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. In other words, those that belong to Christ Jesus are different than they used to be. Those who belong to Christ Jesus are different than the world. 
the world is walking in the flesh and doing all the lying, cheating, carousing stuff. Paul says, don't be like that. Don't do that. Walk after the Spirit. And if you belong to Christ Jesus, then you have crucified that stuff that you used to do. That stuff is dead to you. Because you're going to walk by the Spirit. And if we live by the Spirit, then let us walk by the Spirit. If you're going to say, I live by the Spirit... If you're going to say, I have the Spirit of God in me, if you're going to say, I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, act like it. It's as clear as it can be. Walk by the Spirit. Live out your life in a way where your profession of faith in Christ is the leading motivation in everything you do. Next time you feel yourself losing your temper, remember who you are. Next time you find yourself being jealous or doing some arguing and contending with somebody, next time remember who you are and what you're supposed to be about. You're under the new covenant, you're under the new lawgiver, and there are standards that are expected of Christian people. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, or envying one another. Instead, like I keep saying... Regard every man as better than yourself. Love one another. Don't quarrel with each other. Take the standard that Jesus laid out. If a man asks you to walk a mile with him, walk two. If a man needs your coat, give him your cloak also. If a man smites you on the right cheek, give him your left cheek also. That's the new standard. That's the new lawgiver talking. The old standard said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The new standard said, turn the other cheek. The new lawgiver is laying out a higher, better standard, but don't be fooled, there is a standard. Got it? Got it. Yes, sir. When the Lord said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, it seems to me he was expanding the prior class could be but it's also by the way since you brought that up since he is the new lawgiver he could lay out a new command since he said a new command I give you that you love one another find that command in the law of Moses you don't find that you find a whole lot of do's and don'ts fairness treating the other person not moving their marker stone putting a fence around your roof you find that stuff But you don't find the standard, live by love. And that was so important to Jesus that he said, by this will all men know that you are mine, by your love one for the other. That's how important that is. Anything else? Comments? Questions? Paul said, I know that in my body that is my flesh dwelleth. No. No good thing. And so... We've got to have something from outside our body. Yeah. We've got to have a gift from God of His Holy Spirit placed in our heart that works with love. Right. So Gladys has just in in 30 seconds summed up what I've been saying for the last hour and 15. I could have just had you say it. We could have all gone home. Yes, you had your hand up, Duane. Jesus said, when his apostles asked him, who's my neighbor? He went to the most hated group 
that lived in their area and talked about the Samaritans. And he gave the example of the good Samaritan and then asked the question, now, who was acting neighborly? Among the Jews, they would have only thought of their neighbors as themselves. And I think Jesus was expanding it to surrounding nations, surrounding countries, people who live next to you. In other words, your goodwill does not stop at those people you prefer. Your goodwill is extended out into the world to demonstrate that you are of Christ. Say that again. So would there never be a just war? Very interesting question. Would there never be a just war? I would have to say, well, there can be a just war in as much as in the Old Testament, it's God who brings about some wars and God cannot be unjust. So by logic, I would have to say there are just wars. Now, are any of the current wars just wars that are based on politics and land grabs and oil and stuff? I think we could argue that all night. But the Bible does demonstrate some just wars, yes. Make sense? He recognizes some enemies of Israel. Yeah, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. And since we're not actually talking about fish or kettles this morning, I'm going to let that kind of sit where it is. Anything else? Does anybody have fish or kettles with them? No, we're good. All right, then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.